Smithsonian Folkways recently released a new album called The Village Out West, The Lost Tapes of Alan Oaks, field recordings of the 1960s California folk music scene. And I have on the line two producers of this CD, Deborah Robbins and Henry Saposnik. So welcome to WLRN, folks. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. Deborah, I'll start with you. Did you find the lost tapes of Alan Oaks? Well, uh, I have to be honest and tell you that I didn't personally find them. I got a phone call from uh, Alan Oaks's widow, who informed me after his death that she had found the tapes. Uh, and she had known of the tapes because they had gone through several moves, um, but nothing had ever been done with them and they had not been stored properly. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, no, I am not the actual <laughs> finder of the tapes. Were they, well, I mean, how big of a box was it? Were they reel-to-reels? Yes, this was uh, three extremely large boxes of reel-to-reel tapes in various states of dishevelment. So there were 66 tapes altogether and um, recorded on both sides somehow. I, I don't know how that works, but that's what I was told by the engineer. Who is Who was Alan Oakes? Alan Oakes was a civil engineer who had a deep interest in folk music and folk dance and and, uh, became interested in the scene in the late 1950s and befriended a lot of the performers and a lot of the casual purveyors of the music and uh, also happened to be an autodidactic or as Henry Saposnik likes to say, audio didactic um, recordist. Uh, Henry Saposnik, uh, you're one of the producers of the CD. First of all, before I ask you a question, uh, it's a pleasure talking to you. You're kind of famous in the folk world for reviving and preserving Yiddish music, uh, starting 20 years ago with your Yiddish music project, and also nominated for a few Emmys. What, what's your involvement on this CD? Well, my involvement is because my uh, I got invited in by, by, by Deb, which is my great good fortune she had um uh she had gotten a copy of my previous anthology which i had done for jsp called protobilly the uh, minstrel and tin pan alley roots of country music it, it was kind of the same thing it was sort of tune wrangling uh it was taking a big quantity of music and and creating some sort of order so that the, even the casual listener could could go through it and not be overwhelmed P.S. Deb may not have found the collection, but the collection found her. And that's the most important thing. It found her and that she took charge right from the get-go and brought together, I must say, I'm thrilled to be part of this A-team that ingathered to make this thing a reality. Kind of thrilling. The uh, Village Out West, The Lost Tapes of Alan Oaks, the final product is a double CD with a wonderful booklet from Smithsonian Folkways and only 50 songs. How much material was there that you wanted to put on but didn't make the final cut? There was a lot of material. Some of it was unclearable material, uh, material that we really would have liked to include, but due to copyright issues or family infighting from extended <laughs> relations, you know, that, that was, uh, you know, some sad things that had to be left out at the last minute. And that's always 
you know, part of a production decision is what can you legally clear and be able to use. But really, I think one of the first things we looked at was of the known performers, the ones who are still out and performing or the ones that have been deeply recorded, what have people not heard so much of from them? And that was a, gr- a good place to start. The Village Out West, the uh, title suggests that it's the Greenwich Village Out West. Was there a folk music scene out in Cal? It seems like a different world from what's on the East Coast. And, I, you know, personally, I wasn't familiar with any folk music on the West Coast. And I think that that's the point, is that most of the people were so inculcated with the idea that Greenwich Village was ground zero for folk music, period. And there really were no other scenes, when actually there were other scenes. There was Chicago, there was Ann Arbor, there was San Diego, there, you know, there was the Bay Area, and they all had really thriving traditional music scenes that did not receive the same attention as the village that is not to try to be in any kind of competition whatsoever. You know, nothing can compare with what was going on in Washington Square Park and environs during those times. But there certainly were active and vibrant scenes going on with different performers and different repertoire. And um, I think that one of the things that we find when we look at different regions is uh, how repertoire travels and how different uh, scenes will actually reflect the travels of the people who are performing in those areas. And that's one of the things that you hear on this album as well. Well, let's listen to one of the songs. I think I'll start with Mark Spolstra, uh, primarily because when I think of Berkeley, California, where the folk festivals were, I, I remember there was student demonstrations out there but it's not really a political CD that you put out, but I think Mark comes the closest to that. Can you tell me a little bit about Mark Spolstra? Well, what I know about Mark Spolstra, I learned from Larry Hanks, who, um, full disclosure, is also my husband and my musical partner and a uh, an American songster in his own right, quite well known. But he knew Mark Spolstra, and his story is that Mark Spolstra was a conscientious objector during the Vietnam era and was given some sort of an assignment instead of being in the service as a conscientious objector that he would create music that would foster peace and understanding amongst children. And that was some sort of a mandate that he was given and some of the songs that are on this album reflect that. Let's listen to Mark Spolstra, Play Run Run. Something I bet you never knew Chinese kids, they like to play too And on each foot they got five toes In front of their face they've got a nose And this is what they do, you know They run like the breeze They laugh and sneeze They wrestle in the shop Cry and pout They run and play They play run, run Kids next door, they run and play Kids across the street, they run and play. Kids across town, they run and play. Children everywhere, they run and play. Kids everywhere, they play and run. They run like the breeze, they laugh and sneeze. 
jump out, they run and play, they play run, run. I'll tell you more, I'll bet you never knew. Indian kids play hide and seek too. Just like the African and European do. I hop, skippity, jump, jump, giggle, tickle, fall down. You put them all together and here's what I found. They run like the breeze, they laugh and sneeze. They wrestle in the shop, cry and pout. They run and play, they play run, run. I got more news, but it may sound dumb. Russian kids like to play and run, laugh and giggle, poke and tease. And I heard tell they even climb trees, and when they fall, they skin their knees. They run like the breeze, they laugh and sneeze. They wrestle and they shout, they cry and pout, they run and play, they play run, run. Yankee, Russian, play and run. Chinese, Canadian, play and run. White and Negro, play and run. All over the world, I'm trying to say. Kids are the same, play and tickle, run, run. They run like the breeze, they laugh and sneeze. They wrestle and they shout, they cry and pout. They run and play, they play, run, run. Mark Spolstra, Play, Run, Run, from the new release from Smithsonian Folkways, The Village Out West, The Lost Tapes of Alan Oakes. Deborah, what is your background in folk music? Well, I myself am now a touring folk singer. Uh, I tour with uh, American songster Larry Hanks, who's been out doing it a a lot longer than I have. But I come from a musical family, where folk music in Chicago was just right front and center, especially in the early to mid 60s. My parents attended clubs like the Gate of Horn. Bob Gibson was our family favorite. And so his music was constantly spinning on the (laughs) hi-fi. And I learned all those songs and later was really lucky enough to meet and do some work with him as well. Do you remember any of the Berkeley folk festivals? I was too young. I definitely wouldn't have been around or even in that region. I didn't come out to the West Coast until 2000. I was at the University of Chicago Folk Festival when I was three years old. My mother stood me on a table and I sang for Oscar Brand, I'm looking over a four-leaf clover that I overlooked before. (laughs) So I guess that's my debut. Henry Sapoznik, also a producer of the CD. What is your background in folk music? Well, I guess you could. I grew up in a family in which vernacular music was sort of just present. My father was a, uh, my late father was a cantor. Uh, and uh, as a working cantor after World War II, it was kind of a, a catch as cat can difficult a life because of uh, just the change in the art and in the economics around that. And uh, so grew up in a refugee family, uh, traditional music and pop music were pretty present. It kind of in a way prepared me for when I got interested in American folk music uh, in the 60s. I had been singing in choir, so my ear training was was pretty good. That's how we learn stuff. So then I got into American folk music in my late teens, 
after I had left yeshiva. And, and for me, it was doing like the kind of the mass produced folk music, like, you know, the, the Brothers Four or, or, or the, any of the, for me, I really wanted, I wanted to get past Pete and get to Mike. That was like a goal for me that Pete was my intro, but Mike was where I really wanted to be. I was very happy that I could bring the same literacy and the same thinking that went into the old time music revival with the reissues and the tune books and, and that I could then use some of that same uh, mechanics of to when I turned my attention to doing Yiddish music and, and was able to do some of the same things. Of course, you were talking about Pete and Mike Seeger. Did you get to meet any of those folks? Uh, yeah, uh, I became, I've met, I met Pete, but Mike actually became kind of a friend. I mean, he, no, not with quotation marks. He, he was an incredibly generous mentor. I mean, considering how much of a, a, a pioneer and a path maker he was in the old time world. I, I would see him at uh, gatherings, banjo, historic banjo gatherings and stuff. So it was a dynamic relationship that, that continued to feed. It wasn't just uh, uh, an uneven platform. So there uh, continued to be uh, real influences. And I'd like to also speak to what Henry just said about getting, getting past Pete to get to Mike. I interviewed Odetta uh, years ago for a PBS television series. And I asked Odetta, how did you feel about the Kingston Trio and Bob Gibson and these people who took folk music and sort of made it palatable for the masses. And she looked me square in the eye, as only Odetta can do in, a, in, a, in an icy way, and said, don't put them down. They, the cutesy pootsy ones, the precious ones, and I'm, and I'm not paraphrasing, that's exactly what she said, led us to the source material. Right. The Village Out West is the new CD from Smithsonian Folkways. I'm speaking to the producers, Henry Sapoznik and Deborah Robbins. Is this source material or is this pop music, more of the popular folk music? I think the, the, the material in the collection really talks about the um, elasticity and the inclusiveness of the Bay Area uh, in inventing for themselves... Uh, in a way, they invented their own literature, their own musical literature. And they were, I think they were only able to do that by having like a big entry platform that allowed a broad diversity of voices, musical voices, historical musical voices, uh, political musical voices. What's really cool about this collection is that we're hearing two things simultaneously. You're hearing the maturation of the folk music scene in the Bay Area. At the same time, you're hearing the maturation of Alan Oakes himself uh, of, of being, he wields a microphone as well as any of the musicians wield an instrument. I mean, he is an active presence. P.S. Though the reason for excluding a recording on this collection for it being badly recorded was the smallest percentage of any reason not using a recording. This is amazing. I'm surprised the tapes lasted these 50, 60 years. And we also have to thank uh, Wally McClellan 
called the Wally Sound in Oakland, California. And he's the one that I called initially and said, hey, I've got these tapes. I don't know what I have here. Can you digitize them? And he called me back and he said, okay, but I, I need to tell you, some of these are just crumbling in my fingers <laughs> as, I, as I put them through these machines. And because the standards were different when they were recorded, uh, Wally had to actually go to some trouble. Uh, I think he went through three or four different standards of machinery till he found the right ones to play them back on where they wouldn't ruin what he had. And we were extremely lucky that we ended up with as many as we did. I think two tapes altogether were not usable. Wait, you left out the most mind-exploding thing of the fact that some of the tapes were on the verge of complete decomposition and could only be saved by putting them in a, a convection oven and baking the tapes so that they reformed, so that the emulsion on the tape, you had like, what, 90 minutes or six hours or some before, like on Mission Impossible, where the phone self-deconstructed. Same thing happens with the tape. You have this this tiny porthole of opportunity to transfer this tape to a stable medium before it turns into ash. And Wally was like, you know, the, the Julia Child of tape baking. Ah. And it's, it was brilliant work. We're talking about the new CD, uh, the lost tapes of Alan Oaks, the village out west, field recordings of the 60s California folk music scene. Tell me about Hoopy Cack by Dad Crockett and Frank Hicks. This was an inspired, this is the diamond in the tiara of, of, this, of this anthology. And I, again, owe the vision that Deb had. This is, for me, this is a, a favorite track because it brings together all seemingly disparate elements of how music is transformed and transmitted. On the one hand, here's Dad, uh, a, a, a youth, uh, someone who was affected by vaudeville and affected by the rise of Tin Pan Alley and of commercial recordings. And so he learned this piece as just everyone else who was assaulted by mass culture. On the other hand, he was growing up in a rural Southern society, so learned it through a filter of playing historic received music. He takes both of these things, moves to California, and then is this, this, this gateway for a whole new generation that he's both a representative of the vaudeville and American popular music world, but also a living, breathing carrier of traditional American music in an unbroken line. It brings together all the elements of what makes this music so powerful. Uh, Dad Crockett was also quite old when he made this recording and his playing uh, on the recording reflects his age. Another interesting aspect of this is right before he starts to play, which is not, I, I don't believe is included on the Alan Oaks collection, but we heard it in the studio. He says to Frank Hicks, who's accompanying on guitar, uh, do you know Hoopy Cack? And Frank Hicks says, no, I don't think so. And then Dad Crockett says, oh, a lot of uh, people in Europe used to play this. And then he starts playing that. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and, um, and so Frank Hicks plays along when I did research on this song, which I had never heard of before, it turns up another recording, one of the only other recordings I've ever heard of this, by a um, classical banjo player by the name of Vess Osman, 
uh, from 1909. And it's, you know, a big production number with a, a banjo orchestra. So to hear it pared down like this with one kind of creaky sounding violin and a, uh, and a guitar accompaniment is an interesting look at the roads traveled by these songs. They may have started out as something that was a Tin Pan Alley song, as Henry mentioned, and end up in the folk music vernacular. And we hear this a lot. Uh, Kenny Hall, who's represented in this collection, and who was on far more recordings than we could include, was a California area mandolinist and fiddle player who was born blind. And he learned his entire repertoire from 78s that he usually found in taverns and places like that. Let's listen to Dad Crockett and Frank Hicks with Hoopy Cack. Cack, one of the 50 recordings from the village out west, the Lost Tapes of Alan Oaks, just released from Smithsonian Folkways. I have two of the producers on the line, Deborah Robbins and Henry Saposnik. I noticed on the CD you have Reverend Gary Davis and Doc Watson, and, and I, I assume that they were on tour when they w- went to play at Berkeley. I believe that they were invited uh, to the Bay Area by Barry Olivier, who ran and and conceived of the Berkeley 
a folk music festival beginning in the late 50s and going through the 70s. Um, and I think that that may have been a great stop for them around which to plan a tour. One of the interesting things about uh, a lot of these recordings were, for example, with the um, um, Reverend Gary Davis, uh, he was in town for the Berkeley Festival and a house guest of Alan Oaks. So what we do here in all of the tapes that have been edited out is all the various repartee between Alan Oaks, his then wife Flo, and Reverend Gary Davis. And um, it's, it's very informal. And that's one of the interesting things about these, some of these performances too, that are done in someone's home or at a party that differentiates them from quote unquote performances where, you know, the performers are on, there's sort of canned patter that folk musicians uh, deliver in between songs while they're tuning or keeping their audience busy. Um, so th it's a whole different feeling when you hear these kind of performers, uh, you know, with their slippers on in the evening. Those outtakes would be interesting to hear as well. Are those any of those outtakes available? The entire collection will be available, archived uh, through Smithsonian. Um, they now own the collection. I have, since it was given to me and we worked on this project, I made a gift of the collection to them. They now own it. And, you know, it's all been digitized. It's all been cataloged. So I think that probably when the pandemic is over and everybody is back into the office, this, like so many other projects that have been waiting for full manpower, will then be available to the public. But I can't say for sure. Don't quote me. But that's where it would live. You mentioned Reverend Gary Davis. Let's listen to him. What can you tell me about Baby, Let Me Lay It On You? I, I guess the, this is such a, 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 a pristine moment in how we hear Reverend Gary Davis because there's a looseness and a raggy quality. The whole kind of blues phenomenon, the, the the sort of Delta Blues thing, never really encompassed him. He always sort of stayed sort of on the edges of being categorized as a quote-unquote blues guitarist. So I think it's really, really great to hear how loose and how informal. And that's that's actually one of the reasons that I advocated for using the term field recording for this collection. Usually you think of field recording, you think of, you know, the Lomax is schlepping around with the tape recorders and the dog's bat barking in the background. And you think of it as being sort of an expedition rather than people on, on, a, on, a, on a similar platform uh, interacting with each other. And I think the informal, as, as Deb says, um, a, a slipper presence of this really comes through. Uh, let's listen to Reverend Gary Davis, baby. Let me lay it on you.
The Reverend Gary Davis recorded uh, from a new CD just released from Smithsonian Folkways, The Village Out West, The Lost Tapes of Alan Oaks on the line, producers of the CD, Deborah Robbins and Henry Sapoznik. One of my favorite recordings on the CD is Searching from Kathy and Carol. I wasn't familiar with this this duo. Are they a West Coast duo? Kathy and Carol were teenagers from Southern California, Orange County, I believe, uh, who found each other during high school and found a love for English murder ballads and unaccompanied ballads and were both musical enough and eccentric enough that they started putting themselves together as unaccompanied singers uh, with interesting eclectic harmonies. They were invited to and performed at the um, the Newport Festival in the early days, 1964, I believe, which is a very interesting juxtaposition when you think about the Beatles coming on the scene. And here's a couple of teenagers singing songs that were written or made hundreds of years before that. The thing that tickles me about Searchin was how completely diametrically opposed it was to the rest of their repertoire. Searchin uh, was a song written by professional songwriters, Lieber and Stoller, who wrote a lot of songs that were recorded by people like Elvis, etc. And uh, there were several hit versions of Searchin. And here you've got these two young girls taking a folk music setting and singing this very carefully wrought piece of music that was written in a room by somebody purposely trying to write a song. Here is Searching from Kathy and Carol. Yeah. 
Kathy and Carol from, uh, it's an old recording off the new CD, The Village Out West, field recordings of the 1960s California folk music scene. How did uh, Smithsonian Folkways get involved in this project? When Deb had approached me and she laid out the issues, this wasn't just putting out a record. This, this involved a complete collection. This involved a catalog collection and stuff. And it seemed for the well-being, because again, this anthology was never meant to be much more than a sampler of the collection, not, not an end in itself. So it seemed that the, the most sensible uh, one-stop shopping for the once and future home of this collection was the Smithsonian. And, and Deb made that incredibly possible by making sure that the collection arrived to the Smithsonian fully digitalized. The collection was now, what could be saved was stabilized. It was cataloged. So the Smithsonian was getting an incredible gift. Usually people say, oh, here's the tapes, just back up the truck to my garage. And then you, you spend years trying to raise the money to do the preservation. But here it arrived shelf ready. So this was um, a brilliant coup to make sure that this collection had a uh, forever home, uh, which was uh, up to the standards and the quality of the collection. And other fine labels that are out there notwithstanding, I just felt like I wanted this to have the imprimatur of Smithsonian Folkways, who has, as a label, stood for being a repository of decades of American traditional music. And I wanted this to be in the annals, as it were, of, of history. Unfortunately, I mean, we had enough material, we could have easily had six CDs full. Um, we pared it down, you know, for various reasons and, and for cost factors. But I really felt like it would be quite an honor both to Alan Oaks and to the artists on the collection that this live uh, cheek by jowl with the Harry Smith collection and others that had come before it. Well, let me play one more song from the collection. Uh, Deborah, what is your favorite? You know, I, I love uh, Larry Hanks and Mark Spolstra together um, singing Walking Down the Railroad Line. Who's, um, who's Larry Hanks? Larry Hanks is an American songster who also happens to be my husband. Oh, <laughs> and what? And uh, walking down the railroad line is a—it's a Woody Guthrie song I never heard before. And that's another reason that we picked a lot of the songs. You may have heard other songs by the same artists, but you probably haven't heard these. Uh, other ones, such as the Billboard song by Doc Watson, I don't think you can hear anywhere else. Certainly, Kathy and Carol seem searching. You can't hear elsewhere. Some people uh, like Doc Watson, Rick Shubb, and uh, Hank Bradley as a trio, you cannot hear anywhere else because I don't believe that, that they recorded elsewhere. So there's, uh, there's some magic between the covers. And before I say goodbye, I also want to mention I noticed Ed Trickett is on the collection. Ed recently moved to South Florida. This possibly could be his first recording. Oh, no, no, no. There's there's other recordings of Ed Trickett. He was extremely active in uh, the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, initially sang with his former wife, 
and then sang as a soloist. He's a beautiful singer. He also happened to have a, a career uh, as a, uh, a professor. And I think that that's why you may not know of his other recordings, but they do exist. Deborah Robbins and Henry Sapoznik, well, thank you so much for doing this work, and thank you for taking time to talk to us. Thanks for the invite.
When I was just a little lad With folly on my lips Fain would I be journeying All the seas in ships I'm weary of the sea wind Weary of the foam The little stars of Duna Call me home When I was just a little lad Before my beard was gray All to seas and sailor men I gave my heart away Now above the southern swells Every dawn I hear The little streams of Duna Running clear When I was just a little with folly on my lips Fain would I be journeying All the seas and ships I'm weary of the sea wind I'm weary of the foam The little stars of doom